You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you, Northway family. Glad you're with us here this week. If uh, you are visiting us maybe for the first time, a guest among us, just want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's grateful to be with you on this uh, national holiday that we call Daylight Savings Time. And so I'm glad you're here uh, with us. Do me a favor, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We started this 28-year uh, series that we're going to be in in Genesis last week. Kidding. Not kidding. Um, and we uh, began with Genesis 1-1 last week. We looked at one verse as we kind of laid out the framework of this uh, incredible book in our Bible of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we begin with an origin story. Uh, This is not just the beginning of the Bible. This is not just the beginning of Genesis. This is the beginning of everything. And this origin story that doesn't begin with us, it doesn't begin with Israel, it begins with God. And what we saw last week is God, this transcendent, eternal, triune God who creates the heavens and the earth to display his glory and out of his eternal love creates us and invites us into this story of his to know him, to be known by him, to enjoy him forever and to enter into the exaltation, the worship of his name above all of the names because he is worthy as creator. And this week, we're going to look at um, the way in which God did it, as described in Genesis 1, verse 2 through 25. And as we look at these, uh, these first six days of creation, I want us to see, and what I think, I think God is inviting us to see here, is that it is the sovereignty of God that creates order. And that order leads to our good and leads to his glory. And I think we're going to see this very clearly in this text. But before we dive in, I I want to deal with a question that in many ways you've either asked or you're being asked in many ways by uh, not only just the culture around us, but maybe within even the church itself. And that is this question, is what we're about to read in Genesis 1, is it myth? Is it fable? Is what we're about to read in these verses simply just Hebrew poetry, conveying eternal truths, but not literally, maybe literally, but not literally, is is this what we're engaging with? And the reason we even have this tension is because this is a tension that has really only been around for the last 200 to 300 years. Um, It's not that there's not a tension with those who throughout human history have rejected God, um, do not do not have faith in the scriptures, believe that this is the word of God. That's an altogether different tension. But this is a tension that exists really in recent history within the church. As we find ourselves believing in a supernatural God pitted against a naturalistic age. And uh, this tension exists. And as such, many even Christians, even uh, evangelical faith churches are not wanting to reject God, but trying to figure out how we can reject Genesis 1 and 2 as being true. And, and so many times, 
um, what happens is, and we'll hear this statement quite a bit, and I would agree with the statement, but you'll hear this statement, man, when you read Genesis 1 and 2 especially, you just got to understand Genesis isn't a science textbook. And that's quite often said. And I would agree, Genesis is not written as a scientific textbook. That's not the aim, doesn't even pretend to be that aim. But oftentimes when that's the lead-in question, what typically comes after that by some folks is this is used as an excuse to say, so it's got to be something else other than what it's saying. And, uh, and we look for creative ways to try to explain away the creation story. And one of the most popular theories that's uh, evolved of his late is what's known as the literary framework. And I would essentially view this as Hebrew poetry, um, that indeed uh, God is real. Certainly he is, we would still call him creator, but really what's being described here was not literal in any means, it's literature. And so there's no literal creation. There's no real Adam and Eve. There's no literal serpent who speaks in the garden, even going on down the line in Genesis. The flood is not real. These are just creative writing themes to convey theological truths about God without actually being true themselves. And, um, and while I certainly hope to show here through the text that I believe there are, uh, there are indeed several ways in which you, uh, several differing ways in which you can interpret the events of Genesis 1 and 2 and still be within orthodox belief of Christianity. We can disagree on certain areas and still be within the same orthodox belief. The danger becomes when as a church, we begin to get to the point of all out denying the historicity of this event. And we begin denying that there really is a sovereign, eternal God who, using last week's terms, who barad, who created the heavens and the earth, and using the Latin term ex nihilo, out of nothing, and dismissing that altogether. If we deny the historicity of what we're about to read in Genesis 1 and then in 2 and following, we're not just going to have tensions with science. We're going to have tensions with Jesus. Because all throughout the New Testament, Jesus affirms the historical accuracy of the event, the historicity of the creation event. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus affirms creation as an historical event. In Matthew 19, Jesus affirms Adam and Eve as historical people. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus affirms Abel as the historical son of Adam and Eve. In John chapter 8, Jesus affirms Satan, the serpent, who brought forth the lies in Genesis 3 as an actual historical event and figure. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus even affirms Noah and the flood as an actual historical event. And so if these things did not happen as they said they happened, then somebody forgot to tell Jesus. And the truth is, according to John chapter 1 and Colossians 1, Jesus was there when this was happening. He was the agent by which this is happening. And so I believe, and what I, what I hope to do is invite you into this week, into the awe and the wonder of a supernatural event brought into existence by a supernatural God intended for a supernatural purpose that I believe is perfectly 
reasonable and compatible with science and yet still must be held by faith. And so before we look at um, these verses here, I do want to frame something out that I think is going to be helpful. I'll be the first to tell you right now, I do not believe that Genesis chapter one and two is Hebrew poetry. You know why? Because it doesn't fit any of the hallmarks of the Hebrew language in poetic genres. It doesn't fit the exact parallels of Hebrew poetry. But I will tell you, there is a very um, patterned, literary style that this is written in called prose that is purposely recorded this way for a particular reason. And so one of the things I want you to see in all six days of creation, there is a five-fold rhythmic pattern that is repeated every single day with some nuances. And it goes like this. Every single day, you're going to see these components. One, in every day, there is a command. The command God said, let there be. And then there is a report. And it was so. And then there's an evaluation. And it was good. And then there's a dominion statement. God exercising his dominion by naming something, by calling something to be. And then there is a time marker. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day. Those five rhythmic patterns are present every single day in the Hebrew original language. You see this beautifully written. Now, why is this so? Because you need to know, again, going back to last week, who the audience is that's receiving this 3,500 years ago. Hebrew slaves who are caught between their deliverance from a polytheistic Egypt prior to them going into Canaan, a polytheistic culture as well. And they find themselves in the middle here. And as they're wandering in the wilderness, do you know the one thing they don't have with them? A bound Bible. They don't have a print edition with multiple translations uh, for them to have and to look at and meditate upon and read upon every day. And so when this account is recorded, it is given orally. And in God's amazing kindness through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit using Moses and his personality and his people records this in such a way that it can be remembered. And you're even going to see one of the Hebrew, um, Hebrew uh, literary styles that you see in this. It's nerding out here called the Vav consecutive. It means and, and it's repeated over and over and over, and God made, and God made, and it was so, and there was evening, and there was morning, and it's done in a Hebrew style so that as you're hearing this, you can memorize it. And as I mentioned before, even to this day in Orthodox Jews, every little boy and girl memorizes the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, memorizes it, and they do so through these cadences and these rhythms. This made it easier to hold on to, made it repeatable so they can memorize it, so they could hide it in their heart, so they could worship God. And so God, in his genius, records it this way. So that being said, let's dive in. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, this is the pretext to the first day. And we are told in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, 
I want you to notice God begins his creation of the earth with some raw materials that are brought forth right here that he is going to use to form the rest of the earth. Now, lots of debate over what this this material is. There's three things we're told to describe it here in verse two, darkness, deep, and waters. And again, many stabs have been taken at this. Some think this is some form of a watery abyss. Others would call it kind of more of a gaseous primordial ooze. Sounds like a cool rock band name. Um, some uh, pre-lump of Play-Doh. There's lots of attempts have been made at this. Don't know exactly what it is, but whatever it is, this is what God begins with. And this, this watery substance, I love the picture, in this unformed and empty substance, there is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And again, such a beautiful reference as we see God in his triunity. God the Father creating, God the Spirit here hovering over, and as we'll soon see, God's very word, Jesus Christ, all present in this creation account. And waters, as they appear all throughout Scripture, waters are commonly equated with chaos. It's not that God is primarily creating chaos here. God is demonstrating he is the one that brings order out of chaos. And so here you have this darkened, unformed, seemingly chaotic substance here. And there's the spirit like a mother hen over her nest, or better yet, like a site inspector at a job site, walking the perimeter, taking in what's about to be created the image that you have right here. It's beautiful. And this image is not only important for the physical creation that's about to be made, it's important for the Hebrew slaves who are hearing the story, who find themselves in their own unformed mess in the wilderness, caught between two identities, not quite sure who yet they are and who God really is. And hearing this account, watching this, they're being told this God who created the heavens and the earth, who made something from nothing and brought order out of chaos. He can do the same thing with us as well. It's a beautiful picture here. Now, what's most important in verse two is that it sets the stage for what we're about to read. Um, it's described here as this, the earth is formless and void. Underline those two words because they're gonna be the pattern for everything you're about to read. Formless and void. By the way, this is one of the funnest phrases in Hebrew literature to say. Ready? Tohu wabohu. <laughs> say that with me now. Tohu wabohu. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun to say? It's like grabbing when you go grab teppanyaki tonight. It's probably on the menu right there. So formless and void is what this means. And it means unformed and empty. And that's the pattern for what we're about to see. The first three days of creation, what God is going to do is take the unformed substance and he's going to form it. And the second three days, days four, five, and six, he's going to take the void part of that form and he's going to fill it. Forming and filling. And that's the pattern that's here. And each day is going to correlate to another day. What God creates on day one, what he forms on day one, he's going to fill on day four. 
What he forms on day two, he's going to fill in day five. What he forms on day three, he's going to fill on day six. There is a beautiful patterned prose showing you the order and beautiful design by which God creates the heavens and the earth. And by the way, this is exactly what Isaiah says happened in Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, because he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did, now listen to this, he did not create it empty. He didn't form it to remain empty, but he formed it to be inhabited, to be filled. Now, this is the beauty of what we're about to read. Now, we're going to look at these days, go through here, address a few things up front. I'm praying right now during the 11, 15 service today, I was in the middle of describing the creation and Siri kicks in through the house system somehow on a computer and starts running through her definition of the creation of the cosmos. It was not planned. It's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. 35 seconds of listening to Siri describe the counter origin of the universe as opposed to God and then had the nerve to ask when we were done, do you want me to continue? Which we said no. So we have silenced Siri. We will hear from God. Day one, starting in verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now you notice those five rhythmic repetitions. Do you see them? The command, God said, let there be light. The report, and there was light. The evaluation, God saw that the light was good. The dominion statement, God called the light day. The time marker, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So what God does here on day one is he forms light. Now for many, this is problematic because how do you have light on day one when the sun isn't created until day four? And so this is the tension here. There's a couple of answers that many have wrestled with, and there's many more that go on down there, but these are the two most common. Some believe that indeed the sun was created on this day, on day one. It's just not called the sun until day four, and this would fit the correlation between forming and filling, that God forms the idea of day, forms the idea of the sun as light, but does not fill it with its name and its place in the expanse until day four. That's one interpretation. But another one that many have sought uh, to understand of this is maybe this is indeed speaking to God's presence himself, that God is indeed light throughout scripture. John tells us that God is light. And that in, in many ways, when you have Hebrew slaves that are coming out of Egypt, where one of the most common gods worshiped was Ra, the sun god. This is God establishing right out of the gate that not only am I the source of light, I am the light. And God injecting himself into the creation story. And that wouldn't be out of question because that's exactly how the Bible ends. Revelation 21 and 22 in the new creation, 
We are told we no longer need sun anymore because God himself will be our light. And so some would see this as a bookend to how creation began and how the new creation will begin. And so uh, that being said, either way, God is ordering right here. He is bringing light out of darkness. Now, a couple of our themes that are introduced here in verse one that we need to be aware of. One is the idea that God speaks. 10 times in this account, it's going to tell us that God said, God said, God said, and he's going to speak with his words and it will be so. God doesn't need any help. He doesn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting of uh, brick and mortar. He just simply says it with his word and it is. And that theme continues all throughout scripture because we're even again told in John 1.1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and you know what? The Word was God, and he came and he made his dwelling among us. His name is Jesus, and Jesus is seen as the Word of God, the agent of creation, as Colossians 1 points to. And so that theme will not only play out God speaking in, in uh, physical creation, but also speaking even over our spiritual formation and his word in the new creation. Another theme that you're gonna see all throughout is the idea of not only just God speaking, but God separating. Five times in this account, we're told that God separates something. And what you need to know is that whenever God separates something, it always is a holy thing. Even the idea of holy means separated one, means sanctified, to be set apart. And whenever God separates, it's holy. God will separate day from night. He'll separate the waters above from the waters below. He'll separate man into male and female. And every time he separates something, it is holy and it is good. But conversely, when sin enters the picture in Genesis 3, whatever sin separates becomes unholy. And so sin will separate man and woman from God. Sin will separate Adam and Eve from the garden. Sin will separate Cain from his own brother and warring against him. Wherever sin separates, it is unholy. It is not good. And that theme will play out. Another introduction that we need to be aware of here that I think is pretty significant is concerning the word day at the end of verse five and carried on throughout this account. The big question is, is this a literal day? Is this 24 hours? Are we looking at a literal six-day creation in 24 hours? Or is this a word that's used to represent a longer period of time? And once again, this is a question that has been pressed upon us in the last 200 to 300 years because of the apparent inconsistencies between the natural world as we would observe in science and what appears to be the impossibilities of what we would have to conclude with a literal six-day creation. And the argument goes like this. If this are six literal 24-hour periods, that means the entire planet upon which we live, including the earth, the solar system, plant and animal life, even human life, the earth at most can only be about 10,000 years old. Humanity maybe at most, maybe 6,500 years old. And that just isn't compatible 
with the scientific dating of the planet and humanity around us, which currently sees the world as about somewhere between four and five billion years old and humanity maybe no more than two million years old. And so out of this and within Christianity have formed really two prominent views of interpretation by which to reconcile this. And within these two views, there is a myriad of subcamps that are out there, but I'll, for the sake of time, frame two views. One is what would be seen as an old earth creationism, and the other would be a young earth creationism, and, and then all the subcamps. But I've already addressed this at the beginning, but I believe that any theory that is going to flat out deny God as creator, and as the one who created ex nihilo, out of nothing he made everything, When you deny that as a historic time-space event, it is going to immediately put you outside of orthodox belief because it is going to subvert the rest of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. But I do think that there is room within these two views, within orthodox belief for secondary disagreement that still holds to God as creator who did the creating with difference in interpretation. Now, each one's gonna have some challenges you're gonna have to wrestle through, and that's okay. We need to dig, we need to study, but we do not need to divide. But that being said, here's what these two views can look like. Old earth, and it's all gonna revolve around how you view day. Old earth creationists are gonna look at this and they're gonna see day, the Hebrew word yom, which they understand is commonly used as a 24-hour period in scripture, but there are exceptions where the word day is used to refer to a longer period of time, an epoch or a span of time. And thus, there are some that now believe because of that, that what you could be seeing are maybe thousands or millions, even billions of years between these days within which God created and thus holding the various forms of gap theories that could exist between days. And this has even led some to views of theistic evolution, whereby God creates the process, and then it takes time to develop from there, not macroevolution, but microevolution within that framework. And what this view does is it satisfies the demand and the tension with science concerning an aged earth that appears to be billions of years old. And through carbon dating, there is, it satisfies the idea that vegetation being created on the third day would need some time to grow before humans and animals could eat it on the sixth day. Um, it, would, it would account for the, uh, the theories behind speed of light and the science behind the distance of the stars to the earth and uh, the rate of expansion of the universe and some of the challenges therein. And uh, this camp, by the way, is held by many respectable theologians that you may be familiar with, people like C.S. Lewis, people like Francis Schaeffer, uh, Augustine, whom long before evolution was ever a thing, believed in an older earth. Nancy Piercy today, C.I. Schofield, Charles Hodge, and many, many others have held to this view. Those in the young earth side of interpretation, though, they would see this a little differently. They would see yom as more often being used in Scripture as a 24-hour period. And so also would see that every time individual days are numbered in the Old Testament, they're always referring to to a 24-hour period. And then when you read, and there was evening and morning, we wouldn't say that, would we? 
in our culture. We would describe a day as morning and evening. But to a Hebrew calendar, when does the day begin? It, it begins at sunset. So the Hebrew day, even to this day, is sunset to the next sunset, the next day. It starts in the evening. And so to a Jew reading this, they would read this as this is a literal day. This is describing a 24-hour period from them with the evening and morning statements that are here. Plus, you have the establishment of lights on day four that is going to set forth the day-night seasons by which we operate today. Again, indicating seemingly a literal 24 hours, a literal 365 days. And then you have the six days on one day off work week in the Jewish calendar that was set in motion as a mirror to the Genesis 1 account. And so it's viewed as a literal 24-hour day. And in addition to that, many young earth creationists would say, you know, and when it comes to scientific dating, it's not always consistent. Carbon dating isn't always the most reliable system. But even if it is, I would say that certainly there could be cataclysmic events that would account for geological restructuring and layering in our earth such as a flood that would come later on in this account. But most significant, young earth creationists might also say, who's to say that when God barad the earth, when he created it, he didn't create it, he didn't create it old in appearance? Because after all, aren't there other things in Scripture that God creates aged, such as on day six when he creates Adam? He doesn't create him as an infant. He creates him as an adult. And how about John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water to wine, makes not just water down wine, he makes an aged cab up in that mug right there. So many would say, so certainly God could have created these things. It's the supernatural pitted against the natural. Um, This is my view. I hold to the latter view. Others in this room hold to the old age for you, and we can still high five and hug it out. It's great. Fantastic. But we should, again, dig in, study. There are challenges with each that you're going to have to defend and dive into. Um, But nonetheless, uh, I believe that, um, I believe when it comes to Genesis 1 right here, it's not incompatible. It's not unreasonable to believe that God did this in six days. But I will tell you this, if you come away from Genesis 1 and you are further away from God in belief as a creator, you have not read Genesis 1 correctly. That I can, I can say universally here. But day one, God forms the light and he separates it from darkness, bringing about order. Day two, the forming continues. And I'm gonna have to move quick. Let's go. Day two, starting in verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Are you confused? And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. I want you to notice there's actually no evaluation statement in this formula doesn't say it is good. It's the only time. Actually, because the separating process continues into the next day where it is said it is good. It's a two-day execution plan right here. And, uh, but what God does do here is he takes this watery substance that he has formed and he, it's all squished together and he separates the water. 
separates to the waters above and the waters below. When you believe the waters above, we're looking at the atmospheric conditions, looking at the, uh, the universe above us here. And then on the ground, we are looking at an earth that is completely ocean at this point. And in the middle is an expanse that we would call the sky. God calls it the heavens because the heavens, as I mentioned, especially in ancient culture and certainly here, is anything that's above the earth. The sky, the galaxies, the outer space, and all the way to the abode of God. Anything above us is the heavens. But here it's the sky that he creates. And so more ordering takes place. The squish gets expanded. And again, God is forming on day two, the sky and the sea, what he will fill on day five with birds and fish. Day three, verse nine. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And so here, God forms the dry land within the sea. You have an earth, it's all ocean, and God forms the land, the continents within the ocean and brings it up here. And he on that dry land, he causes seed-bearing plants to grow. Now, what God is doing, he's making the earth inhabitable. He's making it habitable, I should say, for the creation that is coming. Human life cannot live in the ocean. I know we want to, Jimmy Buffett likes to, but we, we can't live in the ocean. We need land to live upon. And, uh, and so God is doing that. And I want you to know that everywhere in the Bible where you see water where it's not supposed to be, it is evidence that a judgment has taken place and chaos has ensued. But every place in Scripture where you see land where it's supposed to be, it's evident that order is taking place. And on that land, we see vegetation begin to be formed, more or less a garden being formed here, that will serve as food for the animals and the humans that are about to be created. And notice, they too are ordered, each one according to its own kind. It's repeated over and over here. God wants us to see that every living plant that he's created in these species has its own seed within it that is intended to reproduce its own kind, its own unique species. In other words, tomato plants aren't going to bring forth carrots. Fig trees aren't going to bring forth apples. Um, this is going to carry over into day six with animals and humans. Sheep aren't going to reproduce goats. They're going to reproduce sheep. And monkeys aren't going to reproduce humans. They're going to reproduce monkeys. It's according to its own kind. Why? Because God is a God of order and has an intentional design that he has given. It's not that microevolution doesn't exist within its own kind. A Labrador and a poodle can get together and make a Labradoodle. It's weird, but it can, it can, it's still a dog. It's still a dog. But 
Macro evolution is getting ruled out here. Why? Because God is a God of order with intentional design. And so God is forming these spaces on day three, dry land and vegetation that will correspond with what he will fill them with on day six, animals and humans. So by the end of day three, the forming is done. The cosmos, the earth, the sea, it's all been formed. And now on day four, God begins to fill. See that in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light, which is the sun, to have dominion over the day, to rule over the day, the lesser light, which is the moon, to have dominion over the night, to rule over the night, as well as the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth Day. So within the universe, around the earth that God has already formed, God fills that space with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, while there's a number of amazing things we could draw out about the purposes of the sun, the moon, the stars, the heat, the light, the tides from the moon, all these wonderful things, I want you to notice the main thing that God is highlighting for us right here, and that is he is giving order to our time. Days, weeks, months, years, seasons, fixed points for navigational reference. God is ordering us to be chronological creatures. Our rhythms are not to be lived in chaos, but in rhythmic order. And as we'll see later, this will serve God's people in our worship of God by having consistent movements in the calendar where God establishes feasts and festivals and the, the weekly gathering that we enjoy today are all fixed for us to remind us of the faithfulness of God who's created us to worship him. And it's beautiful. It's every morning we wake up. It's why the scripture says we can remember every morning that God's mercies are new every day, every day. There is an order here. Day five, verse 20 and following, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So God takes the sky and the sea that he formed on day two and he fills them with all kinds of birds and fish, swarming with them. And it's here that the creation mandate is given that we'll also see repeated with humans next week. And the command is to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, keep filling those spaces. God formed, God filled, and he put a seed within everyone so that it would reproduce and keep filling, keep inhabiting these spaces. In other words, keep multiplying. And I want you to notice another theme here. God in this creation mandate 
introduces in verse 22, blessing. He blesses them in this. Blessing all throughout the book of Genesis is far and above most associated with the gift of offspring. And while on this side of the curse, where we live in a broken world, where our bodies don't work like they should, where many have experienced the pain of infertility, loss of a child, longings that have gone unfulfilled, the truth is from the creation forward, the gift of reproduction, the gift of offspring is a blessing from God to his creation. In the West, we tend to talk about blessing usually framed in terms of achievement and accomplishment and human success, things that we've earned. This new job, this new paycheck, this nice car, this sweet vacation. I'm hashtag blessed, you know? Like we love that. That's how we frame it. Conversely, though, we tend to view children as a hindrance. We view children in the West sometimes as a burden, as an unwanted distraction from those things that we view as blessings. But God says otherwise. Psalm 127, children are a gift from the Lord. They're a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. God's order is a blessing, not a hindrance. Day six, wrap up here. Verse 24, 25, we'll cover half a day because we're gonna cover the crown jewel of creation next week in humans. But God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So here God takes the land and the vegetation that he formed on day three and he fills it with an interesting note, wild beasts and livestock. Wild beasts, those that roam the earth, I do believe dinosaurs are included right here. We're done with that one, moving on. Um, <laughs> livestock, interesting, lives livestock. That's a domesticated animal. God provides not only the wild beasts that roam and are hunted, there's domesticated animals whom God and his kindness creates to accompany his vice regents, men and women who will be subduing the earth, used for the preparation of the soil, along with bugs and worms and beetles that do the same thing as well in preparation of the soil. Now we'll stop there. Next week again, look at the crown jewel. Three key takeaways that I think um, we would do well to walk away with at the end of this account. Number one, God is a God of order. He's a God of, a God of order. And he demonstrates his sovereignty and his goodness and his purposed design within his creation. What God has designed, what he has separated and made distinct, and it's beautiful and it's for his glory and it's for our flourishing. And I want you to see that whenever the sovereignty of God, the goodness of, goodness of God, and the intentional design of God is embraced and heeded, it leads to blessing. But whenever the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the intentional design of God is rebelled against, it leads to chaos and judgment. And that theme plays out through the rest of the scriptures. 
God has a purpose design that his creation is to embrace as good because God has a plan in it. Second thing is that in creating the heavens and the earth, God says in many ways what he's showing us here is that he has created a temple for his glory in the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19 declares, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everything he created, including us, has been fitted for the worship of him. And he joyfully invites us into the beauty of this creation so that we can worship him. So the next time you step outside and you look upon the sun, not directly, but you look upon the sun, let your affections go upward to your creator who made that in his goodness for you and for his glory. Worship him. When you step out into the waters, whether it be the lakes of North Texas or you get a chance to hit the coast and look upon the oceans, behold the glory of your creator reflected in his creation. Let that lead you to worship, not worship of the creation, but an enjoyment of the creation that leads to the worship of God. When the seasons roll through, which is every day in Dallas, all of them, let it lead you to worship of him. I want to read you something real quick. No, I'm way over time. 4 p.m., where you got to be? We're fine. <laughs> Paul Tripp, in his book, Do You Believe? Again, I'm going to keep recommending this. Uh, fresh take on systematic theology. Writes these words, and I think it's perfect for this. The doctrine of creation reminds me that I am not the center of what is. God is not only the great author of the story of life, he is also the principal actor, the great star that dominates the stage and compels our attention. Everything comes from him. Everything points to him and everything continues in him. He gets the spotlight. He gets the accolades. He's the one who takes home the honors. He humbles all who stand in the light of his glory. There is no greatness debate in the creation account. There is only one. There is no one who could seriously claim to be his equal. All creation bows to his majesty. Here is where the humbling process of grace begins. As you begin to bow to his centrality and confess your smallness and dependency, you begin to be free from the dangerous delusions of your own majesty. Here's where you begin to forsake your reliance on your own wisdom and power. Here's where you quit trying to write your own story. Here's where you start to be free from your own obsession with your own glory and your constant need to be right, to be in control, and to be acclaimed. Here's where you give up writing your own rules and let go of thinking that you're smart enough to plan your own life. Here is where God in love and mercy invites you to confess and to surrender. The great and wonderful gospel narrative, which is the hope of all who believe, it actually doesn't begin with the arrival of Jesus on the human stage. It begins in Genesis 1, where his redeeming grace flows. The display of God's glory is at the same time the pouring out of his mercy. It beckons you away from the dysfunction and disaster of self-glory to find your life and surrender to him. Divine love welcomes you in to see the most glorious display of majesty ever. What is written in the creation account, it's not just for his glory, 
It is for your eternal good. Creation is on display because redeeming grace is God's plan from the beginning. Man, that's good. We are to walk away humbled in God's story, in awe of him and his creative and redeeming power. And then lastly, I would just say this. God is seen here as the creator and architect over all of physical creation. But we will also see throughout the following pages of scripture that God is also the architect of your and mine spiritual formation. He is bringing about a work in you and I, just as he perfectly completed his work in seven days, six days and seventh day of rest. He is seeking to bring about a completion of work in you and I too over time. And just as God was faithful to create there, he will be faithful to do this good work in you. Wherever you find yourself right now, God has not forgotten about you. Now, listen to what Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 1, 4. For the God who said, let there be light, let there shine light out of darkness. Do you know what else he's done? He has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He not only brought light out of darkness in physical creation, he brought light out of darkness in your new creation. And he saved you by the blood of his son, the love that was offered at the cross for you. And that work that he started, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As God is the faithful architect to finish what he started in creation, he will finish his architectural work in you and in me by the power of the Holy Spirit, day by day conforming us to the image of the Son. And so wherever you are in that process, you just lean into him, trust him, and he will carry you all the way through. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this long and extended opportunity to reflect on your creative power, your creative glory. Lord, we stand in awe. Lord, we are not the hero of the story you are. And you who brought about this redeeming work or this creating work in creation also has brought about a redeeming work in our new creation in Christ. And so God, we pray in all things, Help us to see more of you. Help us to encounter more of you as we continue to meditate upon these texts that we would truly bring you all the glory as we have seen you have brought us all the good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.